Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. My name is Eric, like Brian has pointed out a couple times. Um, and I will say at teen camp, no one pointed out my gray hair because Brian was around because his is way worse than mine. <laughs> need to point that out. Um, and I don't know if you saw any pictures of teen camp, but um, we played a game one night and it was called Real Life Clue. We needed characters and Brian was Mr. Rogers and he shaved his face clean and man, he looked creepy doing it. Um, but yeah, it was fun. So look up some pictures on Facebook. But um, a little update on us. Um, I, last time I was here, I don't know, it was months ago when I was here and yeah, it snowed like crazy um, when I was here. And uh, so it's an update from, from us. We are launching Impact Church on September 16th. So that is two months away, two really short months away, um, less than that, actually. Um, and we are at 41 people on our launch team as of right now, which we are, um, as of yesterday, so which we are ecstatic about. And then we have 14 churches that are supporting us. Um, and for those of you that were here last time, you heard our story where we went from being fully funded in August and me having a job to September. We weren't funded at all, and I didn't have a job. Um, and so we were, it was a rough time for us, but... One of the first churches that said, we will support you, we believe in you, we believe in what you're doing in Marysville, what were you guys, and was Brian. So um, I am so thankful for you guys, I'm thankful for Brian and Maria, and just um, for their friendship and, and guidance in this whole process. Um, so you guys were one of the first churches I came to to preach, and since then I've been preaching at like all these different churches for the past year. I've been on like a on a tour, it feels like, and this is my last one. You guys are the last one. We go on vacation for two weeks, then we start church, so um, I'm happy to, to do this with you guys for my, one last time. And um, since last time, besides our church growing, we've also grown our family. My uh, wife had a baby boy named Noah three months ago, um, and uh, for some of you parents, just to know, he, he's already sleeping through the night, so how does that feel for some of you guys? Um, <laughs> so yeah, we, we are very lucky and blessed. Um, um, as well. But me being a, a dad, I remember thinking, trying to think back to the time before I, I was a parent, which for those of you that are parents, seems like a lifetime ago when, before you were a parent. You could like go to the movies whenever you wanted. You didn't need to find a babysitter. Like going out to eat was like fun, um, not stressful. <laughs> so I, I remember uh, when, when we found out that Brooklyn, who's my oldest, I have three kids. Brooklyn is my oldest. Found out when, when she was coming, um, I was a little worried about a couple things. There's three things I was mainly worried about. The first thing I was worried about was what if something happened to Brooklyn during the pregnancy or my wife? That was a big worry that I had. Um, just you never know what's going to happen with that stuff. The second thing I was worried about was um, I didn't know what I was doing because I had never changed a diaper before Brooklyn showed up. And some of you say, how does that happen? Easy. When they ask you, you say, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's it. That's all you had to do. I never changed diapers. So I was like, I don't know how to be a dad. I don't know how any of this stuff works. Um, so, so I was worried about that. And then the third thing I was worried about, and your guy, I know you all are going to want to judge me, so don't judge me on this, but I'm serious when I say this. It's not a joke. I was worried about how I would love her. I know that sounds like a joke, but I'm not joking. Because here's my thing. I don't like babies. Why? Why would I like them? There, there's nothing to them. I don't get them. All they do is eat, sleep, and poop. That's all they do. I don't, so every time I saw a baby, like, it was fine. The baby was fine. Um, I like when they're a little older. So my worry was, what if when Brooklyn comes and I'm holding this baby for the first time and I feel the same way I do about everybody else's baby and it's like, she's fine. What if I felt that way? I was a legit worry. I know I can see in your face some of you are judging me right now. Don't judge me about it. That was, that was a worry of mine. 
then uh, March 2nd happened uh, of 2014, and my wife woke me up at 4 o'clock in the morning, said, hey, um, it's happening. We've we're, got to go to the hospital. And I freaked out. I, went, I started going nuts. I ran and got all of our bags. I was like a nervous wreck, and I was, threw it all in the car, and I started the car, and because I've, I've seen the movies, and I, and I didn't want this baby to come in the car or anything like that. Um, I didn't know it was going to be a 12-hour-long process. The movies don't tell you that. So I was really worried, and I was waiting, and I was trying to be like calm and collect, collective, even though I wasn't, because I didn't have a lot of work I had to do. She had most of the work, and I'm like, come on, Erica, we got to go. And she's like, okay, I'm coming, and she just putting her earring on. She dropped it and went, Erica, we got to go. I, I lost it. We in the car 12 hours later. Um, Brooklyn is born, and I'm holding Brooklyn for the first time, and I started to tear up. I started to cry, and I cried for two reasons. One, because of what I just witnessed. That was not like the movies either. That whole process, wow, that was hard to watch. And then the second reason I was crying is because I was finally holding this, this beautiful, innocent daughter this innocent child. And all those fears of how am I going to love this kid were gone immediately the second I held her. Because unlike all the other babies I've held, she was my daughter. So all those fears were gone because this was my kid. This was my child. She hadn't done anything to earn love yet. She had not done anything to do it. All she did was she existed. She was my daughter. See, a parent, a good parent, loves their kids simply because it's their kid, and that's it. Nothing to do with what they've done yet, simply because it's their kid. And God, our perfect heavenly Father, loves us so much more than a great parent loves their kid. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good dad, but I get impatient with them. I think I'm a pretty good dad, but I get annoyed with them sometimes. God, our perfect Father, looks at you and loves you simply because you are his son, or his daughter. And you've heard this a lot. You've heard God described as a perfect heavenly father, but it's hard for us to truly grasp what that means. See, we, we like to put God's love in this frame of, of a good father because that's the best we can understand it. But even that frame is limited, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus gave us a story that I think is one of the best examples, the best stories about God's love for us that we can find. To Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 15. Um, and it'll, it'll be on the screen as well, but Luke chapter 15. Um, a little, little preface of the story. Jesus is hanging out with the, the sinners and the tax collectors, uh, the people that are considered the, the worst of the times. Um, the people that were the least like him seemed to really like Jesus. And the Pharisees, who were the religious people of the time, who were the church people, their job was to memorize scripture and to point everyone to the Messiah when they came. Um, and then they started to get very legalistic and things started to go um, the wrong way. And the Pharisees, um, they are questioning why Jesus is hanging out with all these people that they deemed unworthy, that they thought weren't as good as them. Like, why would Jesus hang out with these tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus gives three stories. The first story he tells in response to that question is um, the story of uh, the lost sheep. And he says, doesn't a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and if one goes missing, doesn't a good shepherd go and find that one and search everywhere until he finds that one and rejoice when he finds that one? And then he tells another story of a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one coin. And Jesus says, doesn't that woman do whatever it takes, flip over all the cushions in her house, search everywhere for that one coin. And when she finds that coin, she throws up hearty because she's so happy that she found the one coin that was missing. And then 
Jesus tells this story, which is a great example of God's love for us, starting in verse 12. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, this doesn't sound that bad for us, but back then, this is the absolute worst thing a son could say to his father. What the son is basically saying is, Dad, I really would like your stuff. I really want my inheritance. But I only get that when you die. The problem is you won't die. So I would rather you be dead so I can have my stuff, my, what I earn, what I deserve, my inheritance, and I can go far away from this family. The absolute worst thing you could possibly say. Now, back then, um, there was two, two sons in the story, the older brother, the younger brother. The oldest got a lot more. So the younger brother would have gotten a third of the inheritance, and the older brother would have gotten more. And I'm an older brother. I wish that still happened today, but what are you going to do? So, so the dad, in order for the dad to actually give his inheritance, he had to sell off a third of his cattle, a third of his property, a third of all of his stuff, and give the son the money, which is, which is what the dad did. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, he, all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth, in wild living. So the younger son takes what he has and he throws a party. He goes nuts. He starts um, throwing parties. He starts buying, buying girls, which we'll find out later. Like he, he just goes nuts and he, and he spends all of his money. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Now, this is amazing storytelling by Jesus, who is the best storyteller um, that ever, ever lived. Because back then, uh, a Jewish boy hanging out with pigs would be the absolute bottom of the barrel because pigs were considered um, unclean. You did not hang out with pigs. So this, this son, who did the worst thing he possibly could to a father, now spent it all, and now he's hanging out with the pigs, and he's feeding the pigs. If Jesus ended the story here, there would have been a, a standing ovation for, for Jesus. But he continues on. Verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. That's how bad it got. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the son has this, this realization that, you know what, if I could become a hired servant, I'd have it a lot better than, than I have it here. Maybe if I could just become a hired servant. Now, back then, when you owned property, you had slaves and you had hired servants. Slaves, they lived on the property, but hired servants actually lived in town and came to the house. So the son doesn't want to be a slave because he doesn't want to live in the property because he blew that chance. He's not a son anymore. So he said, maybe if I could be a hired servant and not even live on the property, and I could spend the rest of my time trying to earn it back for my father, maybe then I can just earn a little bit of it back. Maybe then I'll have a better chance. So that's what he decides to do. He gets his speech ready. I can just imagine him walking back home, practicing his speech in his head. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you, like trying to get it perfect, practicing that speech. And then he gets to his dad. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. At this point in the story, there would have been an audible gasp. What? That son who did the absolute worst thing he could have done to a father, that father 
has compassion for him? That father runs to him? Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. That son doesn't deserve that. That should not have happened. This father was filled with compassion. He had sympathy for the son's pain. So much so that he started running towards his son, which back then, you did not do that because um, men had wore like longer skirts and you didn't want to show your legs. When you run, you're going to show your legs. It was not proper, but the father didn't care about what was proper at the time. He did not care about what other people thought because his son, who was gone, is home. So he ran towards his son. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's, he's starting a speech that he had prepared. Look how the father responds. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. See, the speech the younger son had prepared, the speech that he was trying to earn his way back, the father ignored it. He didn't respond to the speech because he didn't care about the speech because his son was home. See, what this son did didn't change who he was. He was still his son. This story is an amazing glimpse of the father's love for us. We are that prodigal son who have run far away from God. See, I can relate to that younger brother. I can relate to times where I ran far from God and then I decided I, I wanted to come back home and I got my speech ready. I was ready to give my speech. God, I'm so sorry. I, if, if you just take me back, I won't look at this anymore. I won't do this anymore. I'll go to church this day. I'll read my Bible consistently. And God, just like this father, doesn't want to hear your speech. He just wants you. Because you are a son and a daughter of the king. It doesn't matter how far we've run. God's grace and God's compassion comes after us. It reaches us wherever we are. While some of us try to give our speech, the Father just says, let me hold you. Let's celebrate because you're home. See, what you do doesn't change who you are. What you do does not change who you are. The story of the prodigal son shows an amazing view of what God thinks about our sin. But here's the thing with this story. This is only half the story. And most of the time, when I hear sermons on this, I hear that, and it's over. But there's a whole nother brother in this story. A whole nother brother in this story, the older brother. How many of you um, have siblings? Show of hands. Okay. Out of you that have siblings, um, how many of you are the oldest sibling? Okay. I am too. Listen, I feel your guys' pain. You guys had to work for everything. At least that's how it felt, right? That you had to work for everything. When I was 18... I really wanted a tattoo. I really wanted one. And so I asked my parents, Mom, Dad, could I have a tattoo? And they said, no. And I said, Mom, please, can I have a tattoo? Dad, please, can I have a tattoo? They said, no. And so I know I'm 18, so technically I could just go do it because I'm an adult. But technically they could charge me rent, so I didn't, okay? <laughs> so for a year, so for a year, I respected my parents' wishes. Even though I really wanted one, I was upset about the fact they said no, I respected their wishes. When I turned 19, I said, Mom, Dad, please. I waited a whole year. I did not go get a tattoo. I respected your wishes. Can I please have one? They said, fine, you can go get one because I respected their wishes. When my brother, who's two years younger than me, turned 18, they bought him a tattoo for his birthday. <laughs> like, where, where were these parents two years ago? How many of you are uh, our youngest, are the youngest siblings? 
you don't even know what we had to do for you. We, we, you got everything because we had to work for it. How many of you are middle children? Everyone look around the room for them. They need prayer, okay? They always need prayer. They're middle children. So some of us, sibling dynamics can be very weird. It can be weird. Some of us have great relationships with our siblings. Some of us don't. Some of us are only children, and we would kill to have a sibling. Others of us want to kill our sibling. It's weird dynamics. Here we see a very weird dynamic between a younger brother and an older, older brother. And I actually think that the older brother, that this is actually the point of the story. Because when Jesus told parables, you can normally find a God figure in, in the story, and you can find us in the story. Here in the story, it's pretty obvious that the loving father is, represents God, and the prodigal son represents us. But who is he responding to with this story? He's responding to the Pharisees. They don't see themselves in either of those situations. And I know in all of our Bibles, this is called the prodigal son story. It's a terrible name for this. Don't get offended by that. The original writers did not put those titles. This is a terrible name because I actually think this is more the point of the story. So let's continue on with the older brother in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. You know why he was in the field? Because he was working. Because he never left. He was a good older brother. He kept working. He never left. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, what we need to understand back then is people didn't eat meat on a regular basis. It was too expensive. They only ate meat on special occasions. But the fattened calf means this is the most special of occasions possible. If the father is killing the fattened calf, what the father is saying is this is the best day, most important day of his life. Now, when the younger son left, he took his inheritance. So whose fattened calf is this? This is the older brother's. The younger son is celebrating his return with the older brother's fattened calf. This is how the older brother responds. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you catch that? He didn't say, my brother, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? The older brother is furious, and I can relate. I, I feel like if this is me, I'd be furious too. The older brother is so mad. Like I, I've been here this whole time, and when this son of yours, not my brother, he's not my brother anymore, when this son of yours comes home, you kill my fattened calf? What he's basically saying is, if this brother of mine, if this son of yours is home, I don't want to be any part of this family. Not if he's here. Nope, I don't want any part of this family. Listen to how the father responds in verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's how the story ends. We never hear if the older brother goes back into the party. We never hear if the older brother reconciles with his younger brother. We never hear any of that. Jesus ends the story there. See, the older brother is not as different from the younger brother as it may seem. In fact, they're pretty similar. See, the older brother, just like the younger one, doesn't actually care about the father. The older brother doesn't actually care about the father. Instead, he cares for the father's things. 
He cares about what the father can do for him. See, both sons, the good son that stayed and the younger son that left, both sons have been alienated from their father. Both of them have. Did you notice in the story, the younger son's coming home and the, and the father ran to that younger son, and then the older brother's mad, and the father left the party to go see his older brother. Both sons, the good son and the bad son, were alienated from their father. The younger brother was alienated because of his sin, but the older brother, he was alienated because of his goodness, because of how good he was. See, they're both trying to control the father and get what they want out of him. One trying to control the father by leaving, the other trying to control the father by staying. Jesus is saying, both these sons are lost. So some of us in the room, we've been trying to escape God like the younger brother through our disobedience. We've been trying to escape God by deciding that we know it's best for our lives. We've run far from him. We decided that we don't trust what God says about the best way for us to live, and we have run far from him. And for a lot of us, we realize that that sin is not just this list of rules that God keeps, but it's actually something that hurts our own body, and that's why our loving Father does not want to do it. And if that's you, you can go home. He's waiting for you. What you've done does not change who you are. You are a son and a daughter of the king. That's who you are. And his grace reaches you wherever you are in life. So if that's you and you feel like you've run far from him, his grace reaches you. God cannot love you any more than he does right now. Right now. That's how some of us are. But some of us have been trying to escape God not through our disobedience. We've been trying to escape God through how obedient we've been. Maybe for you, you're, you've read your Bible consistently for, for a long time. You try to pray consistently. You go to church consistently. You do all the things a good Christian person would do, but you don't do them because you love God. No, instead you do them so you can get what you want out of God, so that God will bless you, so that you can control what God does. Here's a saying I've, I've heard a million times. You guys maybe have said it. I know I've said it in my life. A saying that, that, that really encapsulates what we're talking about. Um, the saying is, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? You've heard that saying before, right? You know what that's saying? God, I'm a good person. I read my Bible consistently. I go to church. Why would you allow bad things to happen to me? I've done all this stuff. I understand those bad people. I understand the younger brother who ran away. I understand why they have bad things, but me? I've been here the whole time. Why would you allow something bad to happen to me? I should be protected because I followed you so well. And what we're saying is we're not saying, God, we love you. We're saying, God, we try to control you through our actions. See, your religion and your good deeds and your goodness it's what you use to get what you want from God, but it's not what you use to get God. Isaiah 64 says that our good deeds are like filthy rags thrown at his feet. That's what Isaiah 64 says. And if you actually look at the Greek translation of filthy rags, it actually be translated to menstrual cloths. So think of that imagery, that every time we do something good and say, God, look how good we are. Look at, all my, look at my prayer life. I never miss a day in my reading. Look how good I am. When we throw that at Jesus' feet, see, look how good I am. It's like throwing a menstrual cloth at Jesus' feet and going, look at that. Isn't that awesome? That's what God looks at our, at our religious deed. Too many of us have an arrogance about us that we say that we know it's solely by grace and we understand this grace thing, but the grace for us seems a little easier than the grace for that person. 
A lot of us have that. And through our actions and through our goodness, we feel like we earned it a little more than somebody else has. See, I know for me, when I am uh, acting in a way that I, that, I, that I like and acting in a way that I feel good, when I'm reading my Bible consistently and, and having a good devotional life, I feel like I'm closer to God. But when I do things that I'm not supposed to do and I, I, mean, I'm, I get angry with my wife or I'm impatient with my kids and I, and I act ways that I, I don't wish I, I acted, I feel further away from God. You know what that mindset is? That's the older brother thinking. It's thinking that my actions make me closer to God or not. Tim Keller says it this way. If this is your heart, Jesus may be your model. Jesus may be your example. But Jesus isn't your savior. Jesus may be your model. He may be your example. But he isn't your savior. So the question for you is, do you obey God to get what you want from him? Or do you obey God because you love him? Do you obey God to get what you want or because you love him? I mean, for those of you that are married, think, think of it this way. Uh, when my wife and I got married, uh, we, we had a couple of different things that we agreed on. One thing was when it came to the dishes. Neither of us liked doing dishes. So um, our, our rule was whoever made dinner, the other one did the dishes. And then eventually turned into whoever made dinner, the other one did the dishes, unless I made dinner. Then I felt like I still did the dishes. So what I would do because I hated doing dishes. My wife didn't just sit around like, with her feet up. She would do other stuff, and I would do dishes. And if she would ever call me out for like, not helping with other stuff, you know what I would always use against her? I always do the dishes, honey. I do that for you. I love you, and I do these dishes, and now you're going to call me out? So let me ask you a question. Am I actually doing the dishes because I love her, or am I doing the dishes so I can hold it over her head and get what I want? See, that's not love, is it? When I do, when I, even if I'm doing something that seems like a loving act, if I'm doing it for me, it's not love because love is selfless. Love is seeking the other person. And a lot of us, we have played God that same way. God, I read my Bible, so now you should help me with this. God, I go to church, so now you should bless me. Here's what you have to understand. God couldn't love you any less than he does right now. But God also can't love you any more than he does right now. God can't love you any less or any more than he does right now. God doesn't want good people. God wants forgiven people. He doesn't want good people. He wants forgiven people. Not just forgiven from your sins, but forgiven for the reason that you're good at all. God wants forgiven people. So my my closing question is this. Where do you fall in this story? Where do you fall in this story? Do you feel like the younger brother who has tried to run so far from God, who decided that you know what's best for your life? If that's you, all you have to do is come home. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. Those sins were paid for. They're forgotten. All you have to do is come home. God can't love you any more than he does right now. No matter what you do today or tomorrow or yesterday, God can't love you anymore. Is that you, or do you feel like the older brother, where you've been using church and using your good Christian life to get what you want out of God? And what God would say to you is, you don't have to do that. What you do, I can't love you anymore. I just want you to love me. Not try to get anything from me. Just love me. Are you a younger brother, or are you an older brother? And here's what I've found um, through meeting with so many churches. Like I said, we have 14 churches that are supporting us. But I've met with many churches. 
um, churches in our denominations, churches not in our denominations. I've been visiting many churches. Um, I found that churches can be older brother churches. Did you know that? See, an older brother church, they're more concerned about who's in the building than who's outside the building. Older, older brother church is more concerned with the organization of the church rather than the kingdom of God. And as a church that's supporting us, I promise you, we will not be an older brother church. I promise you. We're going to be a church that is concerned for the people that aren't here. They aren't going to be satisfied with who's in the building when there's people that are lost and need a savior out there. We will not be concerned with those people when these people are out there. We're going to be, a, we're going to be like the loving father. And I want to commend you guys. You guys are not an older brother church. How do I know that? You're planning a church in Marriott'sville. You're planning a church two exits down. You guys are not an older brother church. You guys have understood that, that there's more to our Christian faith than just here in a building. There's, there's, there's a lost world out there. We need more churches. If we want to fulfill the Great Commission, church planning is the most effective way to do that. We need churches that sustain, and we need new churches. In fact, um, the Barna Group says that uh, new churches, in their first three years, 80% of new members of that church are people that never went to church before. That's what the Barnard Group says. Compare that to a church that's been around for 10 years or more, 90% of new members of those churches um, are coming from other churches, according to the Barnard Group. So that means if we care about expanding the kingdom of God, we need churches that survive, and we need to plant new ones. We need more churches. And you guys understand that. You guys are not an older brother church. So I ask you, as the people of this church, do you feel like the younger brother sometimes? Or do you feel like the older brother sometimes? Remember, God can't love you any less than he does right now. He can't love you any more than he does either. Can we pray?